0: If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, and we'll walk through verse 18 this morning. Or at least try, I must admit, that as I began preparing this week, spent my usual day Tuesday doing uh, some preparation in the morning, and then when I began meditating on the passage on Thursday, I... I spent the large portion of my day just kind of fixated on that first phrase, The word became flesh, and it was such a tremendous truth that it's such a tremendous truth to see that the word became flesh, and then he dwelt among us, and so this morning i will I will do my best to move us along through all the way through verse eighteen because I think what we understand in verse eighteen is a tremendous wonderful truth that we 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 must take together with verse 14 and so the title of the message this morning is the incarnate christ deity and humanity that is to say that the deity of christ meets the humanity of christ jesus is god and jesus is man coming together and two natures coming together in one man jesus christ as he walks the earth as i began thinking about this passage it I was drawn to this idea that that man really is, is fascinated with the retelling of the stories of the gods becoming men to save mankind from the onslaught of evil forces. In fact, if you just kind of take a preview over the, or if you, a post view maybe over the last decade, you look back and you can see so many, so many uh, mythical stories of the gods that have been created, that have put into, been put into movies. They've been released into the theaters and, and, and even into our homes. Movies like Clash of the Titans. which the inscription below the title reads, Born of a god but raised as a man, Perseus volunteers to lead a daring band of warriors to defeat Hades before he can seize power from Zeus and unleash hell on earth. Or maybe the movie Troy, where Brad Pitt picks up a sword and plays the role of a god as a Greek warrior named Achilles in the retelling of the story, the Iliad. Or the immortals, before the dawn of time, there was a... Dawn of of war in a world where gods and titans and mortals battled for supremacy over the earth. A young warrior named Theseus embarks on a quest to defeat the rising forces of evil, which threaten the fate of all mankind. And of course, the list could go on and on and on. Right? I even remember as a child growing up, uh, Hercules and Zena would come on TV. This is that mythical and fictitious world of the Greek gods and the Greek pantheon. You know, man has really always been fascinated by this idea. The common denominator, though, among, among most, if not all, of these fictitious, mytho, uh, fictitious mythological stories is that the so-called divine one enters the world as a pretender, one who simply arrives on the scene as a man or exists as a man and, and, and possesses some godlike qualities in the form of a man and somehow becomes ensnared or entangled and, and falls into the affairs of humanity to compromise their divine nature. It's kind of the common denominator in all of these mythological stories, but, you know, the reality is man has always looked to a more powerful being, and in their greatest attempts of imagination really sought to explain the existence of humanity through this storytelling or through this mythology. But I I want us to see this morning from this text that Jesus was no pretender. In John 1, 14 through 18, John shows us that Jesus actually descended into creation. He identified with man by taking upon himself the form of mankind. And so if you found your place in verse 14, say, word. Let us read. Follow along as I read. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This morning, I want to give us three assertions of the incarnation. Three assertions are three truths of the incarnation. And the first one begins in verse 14. It is this that Jesus became man. Simply and straightforward put, it, Jesus became man. That's what verse fourteen is saying. And the word became flesh. What does it mean for Jesus to become flesh? Was it what does it mean when John says the word became flesh? Perhaps I should back up though and, and just Maybe make the connection for us from the beginning for those who maybe haven't been here throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, 1, quickly, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it or didn't overcome it. What John is pointing us to here is in the very beginning was the word in verse one. And that word is a word that's called Lagos. That's what it says in the Greek. It's it's the word. But this word is continuing to go on and he carries it all the way down through verse 14. And he introduces us in verse 14 to this great climactic moment. In this prologue, in his opening, he introduces us to the word and says this word that was with God and this word that is God in the beginning from from before time, he stepped into flesh. He stepped down from heaven, from glory, and he became man. He walked among the earth. And so what does it mean for Jesus to become flesh? The word became flesh. That is, Jesus, he became flesh, it means that Jesus left glory and became man. Simply, he left glory and he became man. This is known as the doctrine of the incarnation, where we affirm both his deity and his humanity. Jesus' divine nature and his human nature coming together in one person in his humanity. So I want to explain a technical point before we go any further. And it has to do with what verse one speaks about regarding the word. So far in chapter one, John has used one verb to speak of Jesus as the word. And to refer to Jesus as the word. In the beginning was, that's the verb that he uses in the beginning was the word. And that refers back to before time was being measured, Jesus was there. OK, he was co-eternal and co-equal with God, the father in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Get, get that in verse two. He was in the beginning with God. He uses this one verb for the Greek scholars. It's that word a me. He uses that one verb to speak about Christ as being pre-existent before time. And it uses that same verb to speak about Christ all the way down through verse thirteen. Anytime he's referring to Jesus Christ, he's referring to him as the one who was, and so he was co-eternal and co-equal. And he continues, but then in verse well, in verse three, he introduces a new verb, a new being verb, and for those Greek scholars, it's that word genomai. It means that which comes into being. And think about it, or look at what he does in verse 3. All things came into being through him. That is, they had their point of origin and existence through him. They came into being through him. And all things that came into being were created through him. In other words, nothing that was created was created outside of him. He created all things. And so this being verb, come to be, or to come into being... Is referencing that which Christ has created. All things came into being through him. Now, for the very first time in verse 14, John takes this very intentional language that he's been using to show us the preexistence of Christ, to show us that Christ was there with God from the beginning, that He was there before time. He takes this language, this very intentional language, and He applies this other verb, that which entered into existence. He applies that to Christ in verse 14. And the word entered into creation. He does this intentionally and on purpose. He said, the word has now become flesh. The word has now entered into. Describing how Jesus, the word, entered into humanity. He entered creation through the womb of a woman in the same manner that every other person enters humanity. That's what John is showing us here and telling us here. He's telling us that Jesus actually entered into this world. He wasn't a premonition or an apparition. He He took upon the form of a person. And he grew in wisdom and stature. And that's important for us to distinguish for his humanity. But how are we to understand Jesus, then, in his humanity. He's Fully God, but fully man. And when the word became flesh. He entered into our humanity. So I think about other places in Scripture, like Hebrews, chapter four, verse 15, which says that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin, he entered our humanity. He walked and became like one of us. Yet, He did it without sin. And then I continued to look on as I meditated on this, this passage and and considered what it meant for Jesus to take upon flesh. And John, James one fourteen says, But each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And the question then for me became, Can... Can we say that Christ in His humanity was tempted by an inward lust or an inward craving of wickedness? I I don't believe we can say that about Christ. We can't say that His heart was desperately wicked or that His soul was bent like ours with a propensity to sin. We must affirm that Jesus in His humanity, though, was, was fully human for He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, right? Taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of many, humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient even to death on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and following. And so Christ in his humanity, we see him as one who, who took upon the form of man and walked upon the earth. But in his deity, we also affirm, as Colossians 2.9 says, the fullness of deity dwelt in him in bodily form. That he is fully God and he is fully man. But Christ in his humanity, he must be pure inwardly. And therefore, he knew not sin, nor did he know the intense desire to sin from within. And here's the thing. The only category in my mind to comprehend the depth of this truth is to realize that before the fall, Adam knew full fellowship with God. And so Christ knows this sense of full fellowship with God in his sinless humanity. Christ, in his humanity, took the form of sinless human nature he wasn't tainted by the consequence of the fall. And so while he suffered the weakness and the frailty of the flesh, think about it, hunger. He fasted for 40 days. Weakness after that fasting. Weariness as he sits by the, by the well and the woman comes to, dr- to get a drink of water. Discouragement as he over and over has to retell his disciples The mission and the reason that he's here and time and time again, they just they don't seem to get it. One minute they're confessing him as Christ. The next minute they're saying this won't happen. I won't allow it. And Jesus is having to say, get behind me. Satan, you're not setting your mind on things of God. But on things of man. There is the discouragement. There is the agony in the garden where in his physical flesh Jesus begins to to sweat drops of blood because of this intense struggle that he's engaging in and walking through. There is the pain that he experiences as he hangs on the cross and is is beat before he goes to the cross and the crown of thorns that was placed upon his head. There is the weeping that we see our Savior doing at the tomb of Lazarus. He was human. He walked this earth and he had flesh and bone. And he had emotion and he was human. He was man. He was like us. And that he could identify with us. But he didn't suffer an inward corruption of the flesh because of the fall of creation. Instead, what Jesus did was he subjected himself to a fallen creation which outwardly assaulted this pre-fallen humanity, causing him to struggle with outward temptation. Jesus's struggle and temptation was the same as Adam before the fall. And that is simply this, to usurp God's authority by following His own will and removing Himself from the perfect submission and perfect relation to God the Father. Adam and Eve ate of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so they might become like God in knowing good and evil. But Jesus is already like God in that He knows good and evil. And so Jesus, in His divinity, could not sin, but in His humanity could not overcome temptation without struggle. And some balk at this statement. But I think He had to struggle against the temptations that assaulted His weak flesh. Thus the Messiah, the Christ, took upon Himself sinless human nature and He identified with us In every aspect, from life to death, from being raised from an infant to manhood to dying on the cross. He was a real person, as Warren Wiersbe would say. He was a real person who could be seen and touched and heard. And so in His humanity, Jesus shows us. Here's what He shows us in His humanity. He shows us the preeminent model Of living in perfect harmony with God. And in perfect submission to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. He was able to walk in unhindered fellowship and harmony with God as no other human could. Since Adam and Eve fell in temptation and sinned against God. And so Jesus took upon flesh... The Word became flesh to restore what was lost in the garden. Jesus became man so that He might redeem us from a life of sin. He might redeem us from alienation from God. What happened was Satan threw everything he had at Jesus and he couldn't subvert the sinless Savior. He couldn't deter the divine Deliverer from his mission to redeem creation. He could not stop the Lord Jesus Christ and the mission that he had come to accomplish in the redemption of the souls of men. This causes me... Here's what this does, realizing and understanding Jesus, the word becoming flesh. It causes me to long for the day when I am no longer weighed down by the encumbrance of sin. I long for the day when I will be glorified and walk with Christ in sinless perfection. And I will no longer struggle with this body of sin and the passions of the flesh that deceive me and tempt me and carry me. It's not to minimize or to excuse the gravity of our sin, but instead we it, it, it highlights our great need for deliverance. And the fact that we on our own could never, ever rid ourselves of sin and sin banishes us from God's holy habitation. So I don't want to excuse my sin I realize more and more how wonderful it is that He gives us grace upon grace to do that which I could not do and could never do myself. and that is So I exclaim with the Apostle Paul, and I say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. For He has set us free in that the Word became flesh, deity, and humanity come together in Christ, and He does something that you and I could never do. He satisfies the law of God and brings redemption atoning for the sin of mankind because He lives a sinless life. And He restores that which was lost in the garden, namely the relationship between God the Creator and His creation. Jesus Christ in Him we have redemption we have we have salvation in Christ the second assertion of the incarnation that I want to point out this morning is this Jesus is the manifestation of the glory of God we continue in verse 14 and the word became flesh and Dwelt among us. That is to say that he tabernacled among us. Literally, what the word means there is to make a dwelling, to pitch a tent. And there's a connection here with the tabernacle of God in the Old Testament. You see, the Jew knew that to worship God they would go to the tent of meeting. They would go to that place to meet with God and to see God or not to see him literally, but to to be there in his presence. And so they would come and they would encounter the presence of God. This is one of the reasons that it's called the tent of meeting. And when the tent of meeting, the tabernacle was first erected in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 reads this way and says this about that event, then. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord had come down to rest on this tent of meeting. This glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's the glory that's referred to as the Shekinah glory where the glory of God was manifested among men and God's presence was shown and the light of God's presence was shown among men. Exodus 24, verse 16 says this, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring or a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses, in his request of God, says, God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory in, in, in Exodus thirty three eighteen Moses said, please show me your glory. And God replied, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God's glory shown at the dedication of Solomon's temple. We see it other places throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 6, the glory of the Lord filled the temple in the vision that Isaiah had. But when John says we saw His glory, it's interesting to me that he doesn't highlight in his gospel account the transfiguration where the apostles or the disciples, Peter, James, and John, go up on the mountain and they see there the glory of God revealed to Christ. John doesn't highlight that, but when when John says we saw His glory, he's speaking of more than just the radiance of the presence of God. And while it certainly has to do with the glory of God, John shows us the way in which God's glory was revealed through Jesus Christ. His glory is revealed. John shows us through these seven signs in the book of signs all the way through chapter 12. And then the second half from 13 to 21 of John's gospel is called the book of glory. And he shows us how Jesus is showing, revealing himself to be God himself in the flesh. And John shows us how Jesus, not only in His works as He accomplishes these signs and heals people and casts out demons and walks on water, not only in those ways does God, John show us the, the glory of Christ, but He also shows us in His person that He was a servant, that He served all, that He served His disciples, that He, he wasn't afraid to wash feet that he touched the untouchables and he spoke to the outcast of society. That he came to heal the sick and the lame. Jesus reveals his glory, the glory of God, and that he, he descends to take upon himself the form of man. And instead of wearing a crown filled with jewels, he ultimately takes upon himself a crown of thorns. And instead of sitting on a throne, he hangs upon a cross. But then when he defeats death, he rises from the grave and he ascends to the Father. And that is what John is showing us is glorious about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the Word becoming flesh. Here is where glory comes in. It is through the humble service of one king, the God of heaven who would stand, Step down out of heaven and take upon the form of man and become flesh and identify with us and know the weakness that we walk through. And he would defeat sin and death on behalf of us in order to redeem creation. That's glorious. It's glorious that Jesus Christ would do that. And so when John says we saw his glory in verse 14... Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is showing us here's how we saw his glory in everything he did. That is why he's the preeminent model of what it means to walk in unhindered fellowship with God. As a human being, Jesus Christ did that. There's one other point in verse 14 that I want us to see and that is to say that the only we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father this word only begotten I'm not sure how it's translated in the ESV but it's similar it's the same word that's used in John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or his only begotten son That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. You know, somewhere along the line we've begun thinking this word only begotten refers more to His birth. Christ's birth and coming into the world. But that's not what the word means. The word literally means only our unique one. It means unique And here in verse 14, when he says we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. He's speaking of the only one like him, the unique one. There is no other glory like this glory. This is the glory of God dwelling among his people. The glory which was seen in the temple was only partial. I love the way F.F. Bruce puts it. When he says, The glory which shone in the tabernacle and temple, veiled in the mysterious cloud, was but a foreglow of that excelling glory which shone in the incarnate Word, veiled from those who had no mind to come to the light, but manifested to faith. He was full of grace and truth, the divine presence which dwelt in the tabernacle among God's people, His covenant people, and in the temple, has now come to dwell among His people and walk among them. Jesus, the Eternal One, left glory to walk among His people. People And as a humble servant, he revealed the glory of God through his unique life and ministry. That's why at the end of his ministry in John 17, when he's praying for his disciples, he can pray this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. What is this glory that Jesus has given to his disciples It is this grace and truth of knowing God and being able to walk with Him in fellowship with Him. It is this glorious truth of being able to look to Christ as the preeminent model of the One who shows us the way to God the Father. And so as we consider the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, We must understand that God descended and He walked upon the earth and He did it in such a way that He took upon sinless humanity and He overcame temptation and defeated sin by doing that. And He died, was buried, He rose from the grave, resurrected, and He ascended to the Father. And this is the glory of God and this is part of the incarnation that is almost unfathomable. We can't really conceptualize how deity and humanity would coexist in one person. But that's ultimately why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. He was born in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, seen in the world, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory The glory of God shone down through the Word becoming flesh. And the third and final assertion of the Incarnation, I think, will tie all of this together for us. In verses 16 through 18, I want you to see that Jesus is uniquely qualified to explain God. Jesus is uniquely qualified to explain God. Now, that, that might sound a little... Different, but I I want to show you why that's so significant. In other words, what we're saying here is that Jesus is the expert when it comes to God. At the end of verse 18, it says, He has explained Him. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. This word for explained, it is the word from which we get our word exegesis in English. It's a transliteration from the Greek into English where we get our word exegesis. Exegesis means to extrapolate or to unfold. Or it, it, it means to explain, to lead the way, and to unfold the meaning, and to understand. So when we come to Scripture, what we say we want to do is exegete. We want to understand what Scripture is saying and explain what Scripture is teaching us. The opposite would be eisegete, which would be to read into what Scripture is saying, to take our understanding and read it into Scripture as if we would have the standard for what Scripture says And so exegete or to explain. So in verse 18, it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. That is to say. Jesus has. Explained or he has declared. God. In his coming. John is stating, here's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to explain or to unfold grace and truth to us. One commentator says it this way, Jesus Christ explains God to us and interprets Him for us. We simply cannot understand God apart from knowing His Son. And so in verse 18 Here's what he says. No one has seen God at any time. That's right. In fact, when Moses asked to see God, God says, you can't see my face or you'll die. I'll hide you here and I'll pass and you can see the backside of my glory. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. This is the same word that's used in Verse 14, to speak of the unique one, the same word that's used in John three sixteen to speak of the unique one, the only one. And get what John is saying. He doesn't say the only begotten son, first of all as we know in John 3.16. Instead, he says, the only begotten God, referring back to, like he says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, establishing, like he does in verse 15, this eternal nature, this eternality of Jesus the Savior. So he says there, the only begotten God, the unique one, the only one like Him, and secondly, who is in the bosom of the Father, who is there at the Father's side. And again, in the same way that he does in verse 1, speaking of Jesus being face to face in the presence of God and being God, he says here in verse 18, who is in the bosom of the Father. It's the same language. Jesus is literally with God. There in God's presence, but at the same time, he is God. And so John is saying, This unique one who is with God and is God, he has explained God to us. And so Jesus himself, he is uniquely qualified. As the one who can come to his people, his creation, and explain God to his people. He can exegete God to the people that he has created. And so back up now to verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace and what Jesus is spe- or what John is speaking about here is that the fullness of Jesus is that he has come giving or the fullness or the revelation of Jesus is that he has come, and he has given grace upon grace, and then more grace upon grace, upon grace to all those who follow him. And grace is God's favor and kindness given to those who don't deserve it and who cannot. Earn it. And so God deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. And in verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. There is a contrast and comparison that, G- that John is making here in verse 17 between Moses and Jesus first is from the law uh, compared with grace. And then Moses and Jesus. And he says the law was given through Moses. And one of the effects of the law is that it shows us our inability to live up to its demands. It reveals our sinfulness to us. But then he says, interesting, he says, for grace and truth were realized through Jesus. This technical language that John intentionally uses it. Draws us back to that verb that's used in verse 3. All things came into being. And in verse 17. When he says grace and truth were realized. That is the verb came into being. Grace and truth came to us. Through Jesus Christ. The unique one. The only one qualified to explain God to us. The only one qualified to truly convey this understanding of grace and truth. The only one who is qualified to truly bring into existence this grace that was needed and the truth about God so that we would follow him, that we would see God for who he is, the loving God who wants to save his people and desires relationship with his people. And so here's what Jesus reveals to us about God. That he is infinitely holy. And that his standard is perfect righteousness. And because of that, anyone who comes to him must be perfectly holy or else they can't enter into God's eternal rest. The law shows us our inability to measure up to God's perfect standard, revealing that we are in need of a divine Savior, one who can keep the law on our behalf and give us righteousness. By doing this, Jesus justifies the many sinners, declaring all who believe in him by faith to be righteous. And this is the grace of God revealed to us through Jesus Christ, that God has redeemed fallen humanity, and he has done it through one who has exercised supreme and decisive victory over Satan. And that which was lost in the fall of creation through Adam has been regained through the Messiah's redemption and atonement, namely a relationship with God, our creator. Jesus interprets God in this way. He says later in the Gospel of John, I am the way, I am the truth. And the life and no one comes to the father except through me. Jesus interprets God, the father, by saying I'm the one way that a man can can get there. It's only through me. So, believer, this morning, here's my prayer and my hope for us I want us to ever increasingly and unceasingly grow in confessing our daily need for Jesus, recognizing that we, in and of our own selves, could never attain this salvation. And so we must thank Him for our salvation, confessing that we're not worthy and praising God for the grace upon grace that He extends to us to walk through this daily life. Let us ask God to grant us wisdom and mature our faith that we might grow like Jesus as holy as the holy spirit accomplishes his sanctifying work in our lives let us keep our eyes on the goal who is Christ the treasure and giver of life let us give everything to serve him let us give everything to tell the word of the only the world of the only hope for salvation jesus is worthy of our lives. He stepped down into humanity, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is worthy of our lives. This morning, if you're not a Christian. And you've realized that this morning for the first time. Or maybe this morning you've understood the gospel like you've never understood it before. And it's significant for you. And it's the first time that you've felt the weight of your sin and felt the need of coming before Jesus Christ and confessing your sin to him. I want to invite you this morning to do that very thing. I want to encourage you that as God by his Holy Spirit speaks to you, that you would surrender your life to him this morning. We're going to have a song in a moment. And there'll be a time for us as the church to pray, to reflect upon this wonderful truth of God's Word, to praise Him because of the truth of His Word, because of the work that He has done in in saving us and giving us salvation. But I, I want you to know this morning that there's time, there's time this morning for you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ if you've not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and not surrendered your life to Him, listen, Scripture is clear that Jesus is the one who is worthy and able to explain the truth about God and to give the grace that's needed in order to come to Him, in order to have eternal life and in order to enter into His eternal rest and His holy habitation. Don't deny what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do this morning. If you don't know him, confess him, repent, believe on him. Believer this morning, maybe this is a new category for you to think about all that Christ has done in the flesh by stepping out of heaven and robing himself like you and I. I want to encourage you to let that be the catalyst of your praise this morning. Confess your sin before him, repent and praise him. Praise him for the wonderful work and salvation that he has done. Let me pray and the worship band is going to come up and you respond as the Lord leads. I'll be down front here if you need someone to speak with you or pray with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that. You have stepped out of heaven and robed yourself in flesh that You have taken on Yourself the form of man and that You have lived a life of sinless perfection and You have saved us. Thank You, God, for our salvation. Thank You for making Your dwelling among us. Thank You for bringing the glory of our Father to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to daily confess our need, to draw near to You, to walk with you, to walk in your holiness and in your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you continually give us grace upon grace. Cover us now, even now, in your grace. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.